Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the hope that you have lavished upon us in Christ. We come this morning knowing that your word teaches us that it is good and right for our spiritual health and well-being to confess. We do so knowing that in Christ you have sealed your own forevermore. Yet as we um, try this fallen world, as we struggle with sin, as we um, fall short of our calling, and as our desire to know you more fully is, is in battle with um, our propensity to sin and our struggles with the, the temptations of this world, we confess our sin and we lay it before you and we ask that you would um, hear our hearts, knowing uh, our heart's desire and knowing that our sin breaks intimacy with you. And we long to have that intimacy. We ask that you restore it, um, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us greater capacity to move forward, to walk in righteousness, to be light into this world, to walk in obedience and to reflect your worth and your glory. We ask that you would come, you would hear our hearts and you would fill us and strengthen us that we might go forth and walk in righteousness to the glory of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we return to chapter one of the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 14. Really, we'll kind of backtrack a little there in uh, verse 10 from uh, on last time we, uh, we addressed that to some degree. But we'll kind of backtrack and pick up the flow of Paul's language there and work through verse 14. The title of this morning's message is The Guarantee. And so I'm going to invite you again to look with me in, uh, beginning in verse 3. That's really where it all starts. Uh, again, that this one long uh, run-on sentence in the original language uh, that is just full of all this majesty and glorious language regarding who we are. This is our identity in Christ. This speaks of the riches that belong to us in Christ. And again, uh, a punctuation has been given for our sake, so that kind of helps us through it. But this is just one long explosion by the Apostle Paul uh, regarding who we are, those hidden in Christ, and the riches that belong to us in Christ. So let's pick it up, beginning in verse 3. We'll read through 14, and then we'll address uh, verses 10 through 14 primarily this morning. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that, that we, that, excuse me, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message, the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge to, as of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, the praise of his glory. <coughs> Well, yes, what marvelous language. My, what do we do with such truth? Well, as we look at, at verses 10 and 11, 
it really speaks to now God's promise based on his will before the foundation of the world, God's plan to bring the greatest glory to himself in creation, in his creation, this setting aside a people that he will elect unto himself. And now in space and time, he will elect them and redeem them in Christ, the promised Messiah, the second person of a triune God, taking on flesh, living a perfect life in the law of God, and dying a vicarious, atoning, sacrificial death on the cross. There, redeeming his people in space and time, redeeming God's people in space and time that God created. Now Christ, the Redeemer, then is the means which God exercises his plan. So God's plan laid out in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Now is brought about in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's built upon God's promise. He is the promised redeemer. It's God's plan. Within God's plan is, is predicated upon Christ, the promised redeemer. So this reality, this guarantee, our inheritance, who we are in Christ, the promise of our inheritance and the purpose for our inheritance is found, is founded in God and brought about in Christ. It's a promise. And if you think about our culture or really any culture for that matter, but certainly our culture we're familiar with, we're living in it. Promises are cheap in our day, are they not? Man, they come and they go. It's cheap in our culture. There's political promises, there's social promises, there's corporate promises. And they're always broken. Governments make promises, nations make promises, and they break. Promises are made to be broken, are they not? So much so that it's a cliche in our culture. Well, you know, a promise is made to be broken. Maybe, possibly, maybe it'll come about. If we're honest, we're thinking about this reality. Everyone in the room, every one of us have made a promise or two, and we've broken them. We all know what it means to make a promise and break it. We all know how it feels when we're on the receiving end. And we all know how it feels to be the promiser and break our promise. But the word of God contains truth and it contains lasting promises. The word of God is unchanging. And this text speaks of our guarantee, the guarantee of our riches in Christ, our spiritual riches that are eternal and forever and flow to us in Christ. They come as a promise from Almighty God, our Creator. And He will keep His promises. Unlike the rest of us, God makes and keeps promises. He is a promise-keeping God. Amen. Jesus never breaks His promise, not once. Uh, I think about 2 Peter 3, 3, 7. It's just full of powerful language. Now, this is uh, the world, the mockers, the scoffers of the world talking about the promised return of Christ. And this is the language here, beginning in verse 3 and going through verse 7. No, <clears throat> this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of the water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. What God. What arrogance. But there it is. Nonetheless, God has made his promise, and his promise will hold true. Hebrews 10, uh, 23. Let us hold fast to our confession. Why? Why can we hold fast to our confession? For our hope is not wavering. Why? He who promised is faithful. How do we hold fast to our confession? How do we have a faith that is not wavering? Because our promiser 
is faithful. That is a promise-keeping God. He is faithful. We've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, God's plan. We've looked at that reality. Ephesians chapter 1, this verse rolls out here. We see the plan of God. And that is for uh, uh, he is bringing us into union with himself. That is the glorious, unthinkable, marvelous plan of God that he is redeeming us back to himself. He is bringing sinners into union with himself through the finished work of the son, Jesus Christ. This was, again, settled in the mind of God before time and matter were ever brought about by his sovereign hand. Scripture tells us here in this chapter that before the foundation of the world, he had elected us. And in that election, he gave us worth. We were chosen by God before we were ever created. And in his space and time that he created, he redeemed us in Christ. In Christ, bought us back out of the slave market of sin. He redeemed us to himself. He gave us an eternal inheritance. So God elected us. Jesus Christ, the son of God, redeemed us. And in that redemption and in that election, God has also given us an inheritance. And that inheritance is sealed in Christ forevermore. So if we look at verse three there, remember, God is the starting point. Man, we, we talk about these riches. We talk about our election. We talk about the redemption. We talk about it today. We're going to talk about our inheritance. But remember, this begins and ends with God. This reality, we're called up in God magnifying and glorifying himself. And in doing so, in his sovereign, eternal mind, he has gathered us up as part of that reality, that we will magnify him, that our lives, the redeemed in Christ, we will magnify and glorify his name forevermore. Our salvation in Christ, according to God's plan to bring uh, the, the, the ultimate magnification of his work, his self-being, will manifest in us as the apex of his grace is displayed in our redemption in Christ. So God's the starting point here. And verse 3 reminds us that God is the creator of all things. And the creator of all things seeks us out in Christ. So make note here, the meaning and purpose of life is not found within ourselves, is it? So unlike the culture would tell us that we're, you know, we're supposed to look within and uh, do that uh, philosophical navel picking and look within and just find that meaning, that spiritual meaning somewhere within us that gives our lives purpose and worth. The scripture tells us something that is dynamically opposed to that. Worth and meaning is found outside of us. Worth and meaning is found in God alone, through Christ alone. He is our redeemer. And so this new age notion of looking within is foolishness. We find it nowhere in scripture. God is outside of creation. He is distinct from creation. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has chosen us. Sinners like us has chosen us. He's adopted us as his own, and he's redeemed us in Christ through his work on the cross. There where he would pay a sin debt on our behalf. There where he would be crucified. There where the Father would pour out his righteous wrath upon the Son to appease his righteousness and impute the righteousness of Christ into our account into the sinner's account, there where we would be declared justified in Christ, leaving God just and the justifier of those who are in Christ, satisfying God's righteous wrath and sparing us out, imputing Christ's righteousness into our account. There, the redeemed, glorifying God, promoting and exemplifying forevermore his apex, the apex of his glory, his saving grace in Christ. So this comes to us as God has chosen to lavish his grace upon us, those who believe in Christ. God has chosen us, has chosen us in Christ. Why? 
Why is this so? We've talked about that, right? Why is it so? How can it be? Well, we are to wonder, are we not? We are to marvel at such grace. Here's a good question. I know, I know if you're sitting here and you are in Christ, you're a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. I know. You ask this question. Why did he set his affection on me? And you ask it rightly. That is the most marvelous question that can ever be uh, pondered among humanity. For a sinner to say, how could Almighty God lavish his affections upon me? How? Why? Because it was according to the counsel of his will. That's why. That's why. And we are to marvel at that. That is to humble us. That is to reverence us before a holy God who for no reason that has for, for, for no account of our own, there's nothing that has to do with our merits according to the counsel of his will before we were ever brought into this earth. He had set his affections upon us, upon his people, to the praise of his glory. That should humble us. That should cause us to marvel. Why? Why did he set his affections upon you? Because he loved you. Why did he love me? Why did he love me, Brother John? Why? Because he loved you. That's grace. That's grace. We are chosen in Christ. You say, well, that's too much. <laughs> yes. He said, well, I can't fathom such grace, nor can I. But wait, there's an inheritance. Yes, there's more. Just when you think my heart can't even stand to begin to ponder such grace, there's more. He has elected the redeemed. He has redeemed us in Christ. Christ has bought us out of our slavery to sin. And we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. You say what? And I with you say what? But it's true. Scripture tells us it's true. And that really brings us to the purpose this morning. We'll start with the purpose. And that's in verses 10 and 11. Again, 10 is a little bit of review. So we're going to kind of get a run up on what's being said in verse 11. So look there with me in verse 10. And we'll read verses 10 and 11. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time. And we, we talked extensively about that on last Lord's Day. <clears throat> that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. That is to say, God's plan before the foundation of the world is that uh, all things would be summed up in the Son, the promised Messiah, the Redeemer. And that's really, and that, that's going to lay out in space and time that God created. But we're really looking at this reality of when Christ comes, when Christ arrives on the scene in space and time, when God and his sovereign will chose to bring Christ uh, uh, in time to this world. This, this notion of the summing up of all things in Christ, really for us, if we're trying to track time, happens, begins at that point, really, the apex of that then is the cross. And then all this is coming to its consummate end when Christ returns. Now, there's people have different notions about exactly what that's going to look like in space and time as it transpires. But we're agreeing, and I will not push the, 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 the point today, he's coming back. That's what the text is telling us that when he comes back, that he, when, when he came at first, until he comes again. That's really the summing up. That's the language here. The summing up of all things in Christ. In other words, when Christ returns again, all things then will be summed up in Christ. Everything will be unified in Christ at that time, if you will. 
And so we discussed that a little bit in detail on last Lord's Day. So that's the administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is it. The summing up of all things in Christ, that really that reality of the two comings of Christ. So that's the fullness, the fullness of time. Galatians, remember Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that language, same language. Do you remember that? But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There it is. And that redeemer will return and sum up all things in himself. That's the plan from incarnation to the return of Christ. And we live in this time frame. We're living and breathing and acting uh, uh, here as followers of Christ in this time frame. We're in this period. So it's beautiful and unique. Not all believers experience that in, in, in this side of glory, but we do. We're living in this time frame that's described for us here. So God's plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. All will be united under the lordship of Christ. This will take place at his return. And I know, again, you like me, you look around the world and you say, man, that seems unattainable, right? Emotionally speaking, I mean, we read it in the text, we see it, our hearts believe it, but we look around us. In our experience, and it seems unattainable, but Scripture tells us that it is true. So we know that it is true. Now, knowing that it's true, that's why on occasion I can come to work on a work week. I can drive to work about 30 minutes drive in. And on occasion, I can listen to a little podcast from uh, Newsmax and not bang my head against the steering wheel and just outrage at, at the reality of what's going on. I can do that because I know it's coming to a consummate end in Christ. The circumstances of my life, your life, or anyone else's lives do not dictate to the plan of God. Nor are they to dictate to the people of God. We know that it's coming to a consummate end. And our circumstances do not dictate to us. The reality of Scripture dictates to us how we respond to the circumstances of life, to the glory of God. So I can turn Newsmax on, a little podcast in. It doesn't bother me at all much. I have to think a little and bring myself back to Scripture. But I know that it's all going to be united in Christ. We live in an age of ever increasing nuclear armament right now. Right now. In America, inflation is on the rise. Supply is unable to keep up with demand. The national crime rate is spiking. We have a border crisis. And that's just in the U.S. Globally, Russia has invaded Ukraine. The, the, the savagery of war is, is broadcast to us daily. The threat of nuclear response is looming. And diplomats will not be able to fix that. Okay? Diplomats will not be able to fix that. Ever. But God has a plan. And at the return of Christ, he will fix it all. He'll fix it all. All of it. He will fix it all. Now look there with me at verse 11. In him, leading in this, this is true. We know God's plan is true. And then we're going to see him roll it out for us. In him, that is in Christ. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. Know these things are true. It's all coming to a consummate end in Christ. And let me just remind you, then scripture moves on. Says, well, I'm just going to remind you here, the scripture writer Paul. Now, here's the reality of all this. Here's the inner workings of this. In Christ, you also have an inheritance. He's bringing it all to a consummate end. All things are going to be united under the lordship of Christ. 
all ultimately we bring glory to Christ. And in that reality, in him, you have an inheritance. We've obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Revelation 7 through 9. Oh, excuse me. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That speaks of your inheritance that is in Christ. And God will keep his promise. He will keep his promise. God has set his love on the elect. And from among the nations, both Jew and Gentile, God will redeem his people in Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. We are adopted. We are united to Christ and we are therefore united to one another and we have an inheritance. Now that's a plan. I don't know if the politicians in Washington have a plan. I don't know about that. I don't know if the diplomats around the globe have a plan. I don't know about that. God has a plan. He is a promise-keeping God, and he is a sovereign God who will fulfill his plan. And in his plan, you have an inheritance in Christ. Amen? And he will see it through. What a plan. What a plan. So bow down and worship God for his incomprehensible, amazing grace that he has given you inheritance. And it belongs to his plan that he has laid out before the foundation of the world for his glory. And he has caught you up in it by grace. Praise him. Bow down and worship him for such amazing grace. Now. This inheritance, this biblical truth will change the way you live. It's a biblical truth. It will change how you view your circumstances. Are you a little gloomy about the circumstances around you? The circumstances kind of get to you from time to time. This should change the way you view your circumstances. It should give you a proper perspective, a biblical perspective on what's going on in your life personally, not just you, but certainly you personally. We are to, we're given this kind of language here. Uh, There's a a multiplicity of other reasons that we have it, but they're no less than this. We're given this to marvel at what has been done on our behalf in Christ. That in Christ, we would have an inheritance. So you see there in verse 11, look look again at verse 11. It says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So the in him there really modifies verse 10. That's, again, speaking to Christ. So it's in Christ that this is happening. It's the foundation of our inheritance is Christ. All is in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. But we have a passive verb here. It's we have obtained. You see that? But it's passive in nature. It's not we have obtained by our own efforts this inheritance. But we have, a, a, have obtained an inheritance through the work of Christ on our behalf. It's a passive verb. In the original. So it's been granted to us. It's been imputed to us through the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Christ has obtained this inheritance for us through his cross work. And it's in him that this is true of us. It's to his glory. He's the one 
All in all is found in Christ. All the spoils of victory are bought for us in Christ at the cross. Christ inherits us. And here's the grace. Wait for it. We inherit him. That's the grace. We are his and he is ours. Amen. First Corinthians 6, 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Our identity is found in Christ, found, sealed in Christ. Our passion is to live, love, to share like Christ. We are one in Christ. We are united together in Christ. Man, there's just a handful of us, but we have all kinds of different personalities here. We have all kinds of quirks and all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of things going on in our lives. But what unites us is Christ. Not our quirks, not our likes, not our differences, not our personalities, not our fragility. Our hope in Christ unites us. He said, wow, he said, well, we're a pretty rowdy bunch. Is that enough? That's enough. That's enough throughout all eternity. It's Christ. We lose ourselves in Christ. That's the very core of our inheritance. It's not our heritage. It's not our musical taste. It's not our intellect. It's none of those things. It's Christ. We lose all that other stuff. That's when we get in trouble when we try to fold it back in. Our inheritance is in Christ alone. We are transformed by this grace that he's poured out upon us. That is our core. That's the core of our being. God is conforming us to be like our parents, to be like our culture. God is conforming us to be like Christ. That's what he does to every blood-bought follower of Jesus Jesus Christ in every generation around the globe until he returns. You're no different. The old man and woman is put away, buried, dead. You rise to walk in newness of Christ. We're going to do a baptism soon. And oh, they're so fun. What a beautiful biblical picture of what it means to be redeemed in Christ. The old man is buried and put away by the power and majesty of God's grace in saving us. And we are raised to walk in newness of Christ. What does that mean? It means that God has redeemed us in Christ and Christ is all in all. We are dead to self and alive to Christ. By the power of God, we walk in the righteousness of Christ. God, our, our identity is caught up in Christ. And God is conforming us to the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To us, the promises of God are always yes and amen. Why? Are we always obedient to God's call upon our lives? Do we still sin? Yes, we do. And here's what we hold in common there. We have this common inheritance. We do still sin. But we're still in Christ, and he has never sinned. As we're being created, as we're being brought about and conformed to the image of Christ, we hate our sin. That's what we have unification on. We hate it. It's not that it's fully put away, but it's that we hate it. That's the marker. We hate it. That's the work of God in our lives in regard to our sin. The promise of God are always yes and amen because we are in Christ. We are heirs with Christ. We are in Christ and all the riches of the Father gives to Christ also belong to us. All of them. Well, that's too much. Yes, it's too much. Yes, it is. But it's no less true. That's the biblical reality 
of the riches of God's grace granted to us in Christ. Second Corinthians 1.20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes, and in him is Christ. In him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. First Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you. God's plan is glorious. It is sovereign. And there's so much that we can't even wrap our minds around. But we do know this. It has a purpose. Look there in the text in verse 11. It says, having been, we have this inheritance. It's been obtained for us in Christ. Having been predestined. It set its affections on us before we were ever born. It has a purpose. Our faith is contingent upon God's plan, not our circumstances. He has set his love upon us before we ever entered this earth that we might be to the praise of his glory. Your redemption is a redemption of predestination from a sovereign hand of God. It is an act of God that will do its work to the glory of God in your life. It has purpose. It's purposed for the glory of God. Your life hidden in Christ is purposed for the glory of God. Your faith granted to you in Christ is purposed for the glory of God. It's contingent upon his plan, not your circumstances, not your feelings. Amen. Your worth founded in Christ. That's what it's contingent upon. So find all in him. Live to the praise of his glory. Do all things to the praise of his glory. Man, can we knock that out of the park? Can we do that just right, brother? No. No. Christ already has. And that is what moves us to long to worship him well. Plead with him to grant you capacity to know him more fully and to walk in righteousness. That your life will exemplify what is true of you. That all of your life is brought about to the glory of God in Christ. Find all in him. Find all in him and praise his glorious name. Do all that you do to the praise and glory of Christ. That's what God has redeemed you for. That is your worth. It is found in Christ. And now let me speak to the promise. Verses 12 and 13. And really, uh, I'm going to add on here just, just a praise. Uh, I, just, I, I just marked that in. It's really folded in kind of here. But we're going we're gonna to mark off verse 14 and just address a little bit. It's almost a tack on. I know that's a terrible. Uh, uh, you're never supposed to do that in sermon outlines. You're supposed to kind of have to keep them evenly balanced. But hey, here we are. Uh, let me see. Let me let me bring to the promise here, verses twelve and thirteen. And again, we'll deal with fourteen, but it's just it's almost like a summation here. I'm gonna I'm gonna separate it out a little bit. And so all this is brought about according to the counsel of God's will. Why? To the end, verse twelve, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Now this is the only the only verse here in this in all of this. Uh, Verses three through fourteen that gives us a little trouble grammatically. There's a there's a a very odd word here using the Greek that's that's not used anywhere else. It's a very peculiar uh, way of uh, terminology here that Paul uses, and so it's given reason for uh, people to kind of look at this a couple ways in the language of verse twelve, um, just because the pure, the peculiarity of, of of the word that Paul has used when he says. To the end that we who were first to hope in Christ, that comes out to us translated first to hope in Christ. Well, believers are God's uh, um, heritage. Verse 11 is, tells us why. In verse 12, it, it really tells us that um, the in order that believers who already have hoped in Christ might be to the praise of God's glory. This is true 
for us who have for, for those of us who have believed in Christ, that therefore, because we have believed in Christ, because this is true of us, and we can look back and trace it to God's sovereign will before time, that then therefore we will live to the praise of his glory. But the language is peculiar. So without dragging this out, I'll just say, and you can uh, uh, go back and um, look at this yourself and, and research this a little bit on your own. But people have taken verse 12 and said here, the we, in other words, the we who were first to hope is now speaking of Jewish believers as opposed to Gentile believers. So Paul's kind of singling out Jewish believers, the first to have hope. Whether he's talking about uh, Old Testament saints, Jewish saints, or whether he's talking about the Jewish believers in his context, in his time, but he's referring to Jew and Gentile here. And he's using the we to point back to the Jews as believing first. And then the Gentiles are being grafted in later. And he's used that kind of language here in verse 12 to differentiate and make a point. If he has done that, he doesn't use we all the way through the uh, chapter one until this verse. I don't believe that is so. I don't believe Paul is making that difference here. In chapter two, he introduces the notion of the the, re, the the breaking down of that wall between Jew and Gentile. And he, and he talks of that extensively in chapter two. And it introduces it very clearly, uniquely. And I believe that uh, is unique into itself. And Paul's not leading in here in introducing a, a Jew and Gentile notion. And nowhere before that does he speak of it. And when, when he, the we is used after leading all the way up to chapter two, it's just speaking of believers. So, I do not believe that is correct. I could be wrong on this. Uh, there's honest, genuine followers of Christ and solid scholars that see this differently. So I could be wrong. If, if, that's, if that's so, uh, I would grieve that, but I don't know. My understanding is just a, a very kind of wooden language here in the English. And all Paul is intending to say is that now, that believers have already hoped in Christ, those who have truly hoped in Christ will, will live out to the praise of his glory because he's pointing back to our election. That's his real concept of running up all the way through. And again, Paul's driver here is not us. We're recipients. Paul's driver is God. God has done this as he's done this for his glory and we're caught up in it. So verse 12 has a, a quirky uh, a translation for us there in that language that comes as we have obtained an inheritance, or excuse me, we who, we who were first to hope in Christ. And it looks like it could be time oriented. I don't believe that's correct. I just believe it's a quirky uh, uh, English translation of a really weird um, Greek word. And that it's pointing to the reality of that we have trusted Christ and thus we will be to the praise of his glory. We will live out to the praise of his glory. So I don't want to tangle you up and lose our, uh, our momentum in that, but um, that's what I believe is being said in verse 12. And his only point is that believers who have already trusted in Christ have the power and capacity to be the pray to, to be the, to the praise of God's glory as they live out their life in Christ. That's, that's set for them. And then that brings us, to moving on to verse 13. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Well, again, here's a picture of our sealing now, a guarantee. Here's the language, here's, here's the language of guarantee. We're sealed. And this promise has been granted to us in Christ. And why? If we hope in Christ, we will live to the praise of his glory. Admiral William McRaven gave uh, the, the commencement address at the University of Texas in, in, in 2014. And the title of it, the, the main thrust of it was, if you want to change the world, make your bed. And he makes this point uh, when he was um, going, when he was uh, in SEAL training, he said that the instructors would uh, first thing come into the barracks in the morning, they would examine their bed, they would check their bed. And so he described exactly how they do it, how they had to do it and everything and went through that. And he said, uh, 
he finally, you know, I thought it was so mundane. Here he is, he's trying to say, you know, trained to be uh, a warrior and, and he's, you know, they're so consumed with, with making his bed. And so he went on to, to explain how he understood that as time went on. He said, there's several things, but um, one, you accomplish the first task of the day. If you make your bed, you accomplish the first task of your day. He said, and it gives you a small sense of pride and encourages you to do another task and then another task and then another task. He also said it helps you to understand this. Little tasks matter. If you can't do the little things right, and you can't do the big things right. And it was a, a marvelous commencement speech. And of course, it's, it's very popular and, and well-known at this point. And, you know, I thought about this and the Admiral's absolutely right. That's true. What he said there is true. I fully believe that. But it's an incomplete statement. It's an incomplete thought. And every Christian on the planet can complete this notion of why it's true. If you want to change the world, Make your bed. True, but incomplete. So I tell the boys, because I believe these things are true. You accomplish the first task of the day. I tell them that. Boys, get up. You make your bed. You accomplish the first task of your day. You see that, you know, if, if it gives you a sense of accomplishment. That's true. If you see that you can accomplish that task, you can accomplish other tasks. Today, and you set goals and you can accomplish them. Set this goal. Make your bed. See if the little things matter. The little things do matter. If you don't do the little things well, you won't do the big things well. They matter. Make your bed. And most importantly, sons, you make your bed to the glory of God. That's what completes the admiral's thought. All these things are true. But for the Christian son, make your bed. All those things are true. But you make your bed to the glory of God. All that you. Why, why do you make your bed to the glory of God, Christian, if you're not with me? All that you do, you do to the glory of God. If you don't do the little things to the glory of God, you're not doing the big things to the glory of God. You're going to be too stinking afraid. Make your bed to the glory of God. All of our life is lived out to the glory of God. And we come here when we're scared and we're frightened and we're confused when the world seems like it's closing in on us, when it seems like God is far away. We come to texts like this and we understand our inheritance and we understand by the power of God what it does in our lives. We live our lives out to the glory of God because God has made us his own and granted us an inheritance in Christ. It's in him. The message of truth, the gospel is in him. You see that in him. He tells us you also, after listening to the message of truth, that is the gospel. That's the gospel of your salvation. It's speaking of the process here. We hear the good news of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done in Christ on our behalf. We've been placed in right relationship with God through trusting the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see that there? We listen to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. We believe we didn't just listen to it. And by the way, where do we find that? Where do we find the message of truth? In that language, where's the message of truth? Where's the gospel of our salvation? Where do we find that? Well, it should be on the lips of believers, but where do we find it? It's in Scripture. So we're, we're people of the book. We find this in the Word of God. The word of truth, the truth of our salvation, we're convicted and, and then we're converted. And the very center of that is the word of God. The word of God is the means through which God deals with his people. It's the Bible. We have the word and we believe in Christ. We don't just believe about him. We believe in him in the sense that we rely on him fully. That's what it means here to believe on Christ. We believed on Christ and then we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Romans 10, 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here and you don't have a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ, Scripture tells you, the Word of God tells you, the Word of truth, the gospel of salvation tells you, repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as we are saved, verse 13 tells us this beautiful truth. We are saved and then we are sealed with the Spirit. Do you see that there? 
We're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit of God indwells us by the Spirit of God. So here's the reality for the Christian life. If you're here and you have this great inheritance, you have been, uh, you, you've been predestined, you've been elected before the foundation of the world, you've been redeemed in Christ, you've been set apart in Christ, you've been bought out of the slave market of sin in Christ, and now in Christ you believed on him, and now in Christ you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Spirit of God that indwells you leads you to commune with Christ, commune with Christ in His Word and in prayer. In prayer, the most intimate communion you can have with Christ. With Christ, that's what the Word tells us. That's what Bible tells us. The Spirit of God is moving you to commune with your God in prayer and in the Word. That should be viable, active, meaningful, fervent, front burner realities of your life. And there's worship to be had here. You have a responsibility in that. But that is true of all genuine blood-bought believers. We have struggles. We have emotional ups and downs. That is true. But what is foundational in our lives is that the Spirit of God indwells us as a seal of our inheritance. And what the Spirit of God does in our life, again, much more but no less than this, moves us to commune, to have intimacy with our God in the word of God, and in prayer. Most intimately in prayer. That is true of every believer. And since that is true, trust God's intimate love for you in the word of God and communion with God in your word, which fills your prayers to a holy God, which gives you greater intimacy with God, you will find trust in your God who has redeemed you out and given you an inheritance. Trust in his love for you. Why? Why did he love me? Because he loved you. Trust in his love for you. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Stop being so afraid. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Does the media scare you? Stop. Listen to the media. Stop being afraid. Stop scaring one another. Stop being afraid. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer so that we may also be suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Oh, wait a minute, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer either. But if we suffer, we suffer in Christ. However we suffer, we suffer in Christ. And what we know for sure in our sufferings or whatever else is brought about in our life to the glory of God, we will be in Christ. And our lives will be lived out for the glory of God. Trust in God's love for you to his glory. Finally, I just want to to tack on the emphasis of praise here in verse 14 as we wrap up. It's the Holy Spirit of promise, the seal of God's of God's guarantee of our inheritance. Spirit of God that dwells every believer is a guarantee, a seal, a pledge by your God that you have an inheritance in Christ. He's given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now the Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance that we are redeemed in Christ to the glory of God. We are his possession. He's made us his own. And again, you ask why. Why? To the praise of his glory. How can I comprehend it? Well, you can't fully, but you got all of eternity to work on that. What you must know is it's to the praise of his glory. That way, when we just bring it down, it's not about us. It is about him. But when we bring it down to us as recipients, everything that comes your way, everything that comes your way in this life comes your way through the sovereign hand of God. 
and not to land in your lap in a void, but to land in your lap to the praise of his glory. Now that gives you perspective on all of life. Brother Chris was not expecting to have an accident out on a farm and back him up where he was going to be immobile for a number of weeks. But he was telling me the other day, you know, you, you emotionally, it takes you a while to come to this and there's pain. But he was telling me in so many words, you know, it is humbling, but God intends for me to learn from this. What? What is that about? Only a Christian can say that. Learn what he's doing in this. It doesn't make sense to us, right? When we get beat up, it doesn't make sense. Learn what he's doing in our lives here to the praise of his glory. That's how it works. And this is a promise. This is a promise. All that comes your way comes from the sovereign hand of God. And it is to the praise of his glory. It's not a maybe if, what it would have, could have, should have. It is to praise of his glory. Our responsibility is to catch up and worship that truth. That's our responsibility. God is no longer distant from you. He's not distant. He is our intimate father. Our inheritance is guaranteed. Spirit of God indwells us. We are sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee of our redemption in Christ. And that redemption will resound to the praise of the glory of God's grace and salvation throughout all eternity. When you think about the book of Ephesians there, or here, we're going to get to this place soon. Uh, Y'all give me that look. Soon. Maybe. That's a maybe. We can see that as a maybe. Lord willing. But there's a beautiful place. And we're talking about this reality of, of the barrier being broken down between Jew and Gentile and just the church, the beauty of the church. And scripture tells us that God has brought about the beauty of his redemptive work in the church and the people of God and the people of Christ throughout all the nations. That all the beings, all the created beings in the heavens will look down upon the church and marvel at the manifest wisdom of God and bringing about the church to his glory. That's what's going on in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? How do we apply all this stuff? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But here's some thoughts. I know this. It may not always feel like it. all this we see here in verses 10 through 14. Our emotions may not always line up with that. It may not always feel like it. Is that proper English? That's the right way. You understand what I'm saying? It may not. Then it may not always feel that we have an inheritance. But our inheritance is guaranteed. Scripture tells us it's guaranteed. So your feelings, although they matter, they don't really matter. So you kind of got to get over yourself with the feelings. It may not always feel like it, but it's true. We possess it right now. And we are in the process of possessing it. Yes, there's more to come. If you're in Christ, God has started a good work in you. You have all of eternity for God to continue to bring this about to you. He's coming back. There's more to come. One day you are going to meet him in a different context than living as a follower of Christ in this world, as glorious as this is. There's more to come. You possess it now, but you're in the process of possessing it all the way into eternity. There's more to come. And here's the application, at least something to kind of build a foundation on. He's going to see you through. God has started a good work in you, and he will see you through. He will complete the good work that he has started in you. Amen? He'll complete it. He started it, and he'll bring it about. He'll complete it. It's not always going to feel like it. We're not always going to be, you know, like a, a soaring at the heights. Our emotions are not always going to catch up to this glorious truth, but he will bring it about. He has started a good work in you. He will see you through. Um, the other day I, I was, uh, I kind of embarrassed myself with the men's beating. I'm showing show my age. I, I had a, a meeting 
up and boom with a, with a stockbroker. I changed banks and I met this guy and I decided to change and I was going to take this guy on as a, as a stockbroker. So I went to meet with him up in Boone and it was the night of our men's meeting. And I, after I met with this guy, I, I just started driving home and I forgot all about the men's meeting. So it's kind of embarrassed. Um, but I went up there and, and you know, he's a nice guy, seemed to be a, uh, you know, a, a sharp guy. And so I brought him my little measly portfolio and I, showed him my portfolio and he, and he said, is this it? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's it. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said this, well, I've seen worse. He, that's exactly what he said to me. I've seen worse. <laughs> so, Hey, uh, that, that was, uh, that was something too. But look, I say that to bring your attention to this fact. That was my portfolio and it is pretty shabby, but that's okay. It could change. It's not guaranteed. He can look at it and say, man, he's seen worse. And it could get even worse. It's not guaranteed. My stock holdings are not guaranteed. But this is a guarantee. Our inheritance in Christ is sure. It's sure in Christ's perfect atonement on our behalf at the cross. God has set his affections on us. We believed on Christ and we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So all will know how great God is. And that guarantee is true. You can take it to the bank. No pun intended. It is true. Our salvation starts with God and ends with God. And we have this great application. Make much of him. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. You alone are glorious. Thank you for our inheritance in Christ. May we live it out to your glory. Give us strength, oh God. Where we are weak, make us strong. Where we are uh, fearful, give us courage. Where we are slow to speak, um, give us boldness where we are perplexed and give us wisdom. Grant us capacity to make much of you and that your name will be glorified in our lives. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.